Welcome to the Ram Iyer Podcast with your host, Ram Iyer, thought leader, author, keynote speaker, workshop leader, and mentor. Listen to his engaging conversations with experts from across the world and his personal insights that will help you create a better life, become more successful, and achieve your personal greatness. Now, here's Ram! Welcome to Business Thinking Radio. I'm Ram Ayer, the host and president of the Business Thinking Institute in Princeton. Today's show is about the future of learning. A conversation with Professor Sanjay Sharma, professor and vice president for open learning at MIT. I was going to write a long introduction and then I found a quote in one of Professor Sharma's presentations which nicely summed up what we are talking about and why we are talking about it. The quote goes as follows. It comes from Plutarch. The mind is a fire to be kindled, not a vessel to be filled. I think that very nicely captures what we are going to be talking about. So Professor Sharma is the Vice President for Open Learning at MIT. He also leads the Office of Digital Learning, which oversees all MIT open courseware and supports the development and use of digital technology for on-campus teaching and MOOCs, or the Massive open online courses. He currently serves on the board of edX, a nonprofit set up by MIT and Harvard to create and spread the open source platform for distribution of free online education. He sits on several other company boards. He also advises several national governments and global companies. He is a graduate of the Indian Institute of Technology. His master's was from Carnegie Mellon and his PhD from the University of California at Berkeley. Welcome, Sanjay. Nice to be here, Ram. Absolutely. The thing that struck me and caused me to want to reach out to you and invite you to our podcast, you know, the current education system is geared towards preparing graduates to largely work at corporations, but worldwide, the rate of business formation is decreasing. Well, yes, more entrepreneurs are jumping in here, but not every place is Silicon Valley or Route 128. What's happening is hundreds of millions of people will be pushed into the gig economy where niche, immediately marketable skills are most important because people want to make a living now, not hopefully in the future. How do you think the education system should evolve to meet this uh, evolving need? Well, I mean, first of all, uh, education system needs to evolve, period, regardless of whether the labor market changes or not, because it is outdated. But the changes in the labor market that you refer to make it not just an important thing, but an urgent and desperately needed thing. And I think what will happen is that it's sort of like what online commerce is doing to retail, right? I mean, we did retail, you know, you do your weekend shopping trip to your grocery store with a, and you buy several bag loads of groceries and bring them home. And now with online, it's a flow model. I mean, it's sort of like streaming supply chain is the way I refer mm-hmm. to it. And I think what we're going to have is streaming education. The point being that you don't go to college for two years to get your MBA, but you're constantly learning using a combination of media to update your skills and upgrade your knowledge so that you can meet very, very transient and rapidly evolving demands from the labor market. The other thing I'll say is that today, in a lot of places, the curriculum doesn't match what industry wants, and that leads to skill gaps. So the idea of a dynamic playlist where the resume of successful students serves as a model for later students is inevitable. Correct, but who's going to put together such a playlist? That's a great point again. I think that, first of all, credentialing, 
is where there's a credentialing authority that puts together the playlist. So that's one way to do it. But I also think there'll be a new industry and economy of very dynamic playlists. I mean, if you work for yourself, let's say you're an artist, and you have to learn a new digital tool so that you can deliver logos in a certain form, it almost doesn't matter whether you're credentialed or not. You have to show your work. So in that circumstance, you don't care about the credential. You just want to know what you need to learn next so that you're up to mark. So that's where I think that we will see an emergence of a variety of things, you know, things that, for example, look at patterns, artificial intelligence systems that tell you that you should be taking this, this, and this to maximize your job outcomes. It's going to be a very interesting, frankly, a slightly unsettling time ahead of us. But a curriculum made up 10 years ago ain't going to cut it anymore. What you're painting here is a future where there will be several credentialing organizations uh, which put together playlists, and there are many people who cater to the individual subjects or topics or skills. It's how credible that credential playlist is that makes one more valuable than the other. I think that one of the things about working is, I mean, for example, you and I, Ram, are likely not going to get another degree, right? Mm -hmm. But mm -hmm. we are reasonably well-known in our fields, and we have consulting gigs and so on. And beyond a point, our next consulting gig is going to come because of the references almost. So when you're in an area where you're working all the time, it's your achievement that is attested by your competency and how you did the last time that is in many ways the ultimate credential, right? What we call credentials today are proxies. It's saying, I can show that this person went through this course, right? Mm -hmm. But if you're working for yourself, yes, you need some credentials, but it's the referral that matters. So it's really more about how well you learn. It's less about the credential itself. That's a good point. That takes me to another area which is popping in my head a fair bit. Pedagogy is a name for how teachers teach a particular subject based upon theories of learning, the understanding of students and their needs and their background and their interests. The pedagogy of learning currently, in a, say, if you go to high school, is based upon the kind of people who come out of middle school. If you go to college, it's based on people who come from high school. But in the future, I see people jumping up and down this artificial hierarchy that I just described. I think that's exactly right. Look, I mean, the fact of the matter is that the way we do pedagogy today is based on a manufactured system from about 200 years ago. And the curricula, which is the content, and pedagogy being the method, are sort of recently made up things. It doesn't mean they're ideal for the way we learn. The fact of the matter is you may have forgotten your 12th grade math, you know, mm -hmm. when you're 35. But then mm -hmm. if you want to change your skill set, let's say you want to go into biotech and you need to do some data analysis, you may have forgotten your statistics, right? So you're going to have to bounce back and forth. Our approach today, both pedagogically and curricula, is to declare victory. You learn statistics. Clearly, you're going to remember it. But that's not true at all. In fact, forgetting is a Very fundamental true. part of the way the brain works. Yeah, so you're going to yeah. bounce back and forth. And that bouncing is not supported by the extremely rigid ladder structure that we have today. But it's going to be enabled by online education. So you're saying that the current pedagogy of learning does not allow for people to bounce up and down, but online learning can enable you to do just that. That's right. I mean, it's very flexible, right? I mean, the beauty of online is on so many dimensions, it's better. It's worse in some dimensions. Let's not kid ourselves. I'll come to those in a minute. But it's better on many, many, many dimensions. One of them is you can pause. You know, If you're tired, you can just pause the video. You can rewind something. You can't rewind a professor while they're speaking. Mm -hmm. You can watch the video when you're not tired. And then you can make the video short. You can do it in small chunks. And you can review it, you know, 10 years later, right? On so many dimensions, 
online is very good. I mean, I can talk about the downsides in a minute as well, but many, many, many upsides. The thing that keeps popping up in my head as I listen to you is, it's wonderful that there is so much information available, but I don't know where to go and partake what. And that seems to be a big issue that will keep popping up over and over again. People assume, I believe wrongly, you go get an MBA from pick your favorite school, you will succeed in business. And having been in business, we know MBA is only one part of it. Right? That's exactly right. Is reading the NFL playbook going to turn you into Tom Brady? Of course not. Mm-hmm. So that's, I think your point is right. So that is also the second part of this, which is the downside of online. Online is good for training. Online is good for learning things in theory. And where on-site becomes tremendously important, whether it's at work or in the presence of an expert, the teacher, for example, is what the teacher does is we as human beings, we learn by mimicking. Parts of our brain are devoted to learning by watching someone else and doing that. We learn Mm. by doing because it engages the rest of your brain. We learn by error. If you don't do something, it's harder for you to make an error. And we also learn by the other person doing what is called cognitive task analysis or people doing cognitive task analysis on experts and telling you how to improve your technique, maybe almost psychoanalyzing your misunderstandings and fixing them. It's sort of like learning to play tennis with a great coach, right? You can't do it online, but you need to be with the coach. The coach needs to watch you, maybe even watch your eyes, watch your head position when you're serving, maybe you dipped your head too early and so on. So the in-person is extremely important, but lecturing in a classroom is a sort of a poor way to deploy that time because you could do that online for much better. That makes sense. So at some point, you're advocating that it is much better to move your learning to online learning and then be self-paced. But what is the basic foundation that one needs, a pedagogy of learning that one has completed that can enable you to do a range of these things? For example, should I at least have finished high school in order to go on any one of these paths I choose? I think in this new age, an age when we're going to reinvent ourselves, your foundations have to be strong. I mm. believe that high school and school education also needs to be transformed. Mm. And it's already happening. So at Khan Academy, kids mm-hmm. found that better sometimes than the lectures they were getting in classrooms. They watch Sal Khan, they show up in the classrooms, then the teachers have no choice but to do something more hands-on in the classroom. And that's what is called the flipped classroom, right? So pedagogy needs to change in high school. But the point is that deep and resilient and robust and durable understanding of foundations is going to become more and more important because if you're going to jump up and down, to use our early analogy, you need to have a solid foundation. And, you know, yes, you may have forgotten statistics, but you will recall it better if you understood it very well to begin with. So if you're changing your job from a programmer to someone who's doing data analysis for biotech, and you need mm-hmm. to recall your statistics, your foundations will help you there. I know it already exists to some extent. You know, there are different types of schools. Not uh, every school is like a large university. As there are more and more of these freelancers in the gig economy, I would see that there'll be a preponderance of these niche offering uh, players, and uh, there'll be a reduction in the classic universe. I mean, yes, to some extent, no, to some extent. I think clearly the niches are very important. Even in a university, you have schools. You have a nursing school. That's a niche, right? And then in some countries, the nursing school is attached to a hospital, right? So that's a niche. I think what will happen is a lot of the more niche stuff will become more tied to the workplace, actually. So that is the German apprenticeship system. So if you run a factory, it's easier to teach technician-related or manufacturer or you know machinist-related skills right next to the factory. That's why mm-hmm, teaching hospitals mm-hmm. teach, uh, you know, medical mm-hmm. stuff. They don't teach engineering, right, mm-hmm. generally. 
So I do think that what you're saying is absolutely right in the sense that the niche stuff will in fact grow. And my view is it'll be more closely attached to apprenticeship and work. It also addresses issues like uh, student debt and so on. But on the other hand, I think a lot of innovation is happening at the interfaces between fields. Bio and tech, that's an mm-hmm. interface. So you need to have bio and tech together. That's why MIT is, uh, is so great at biotech, right? And that's where the great research universities will flourish. I worry about the universities in the middle because they're sort of caught between two worlds. What do you mean by universities in the middle? If you have a nursing school that's not attached to a teaching hospital, which is rare, but let's say that you did have one, right? Mm-hmm. If you had an engineering school which is not attached to really great research where the student can learn innovation, but also is not attached to a company really and is sort of disconnected from the real world, you're exposed. Is Mercedes-Benz or Ford, maybe they can teach engineering better than a standalone engineering school, which is not connected. So I think that the universities, you know, MIT, because there's a lot of research and, you know, you work with all these great companies, you get the best of both worlds. So you're advocating for three things to be combined, research, teaching, and a real-world experience, which could be in the form of a co-op program. Yes, co-op is one way to do it. But that's right. I mean, I'm basically saying that those three tracks have to come together much more closely. And it may not even be a co-op. It may be a co-work, right? Where you're working True. and taking courses online and during your work, you get some tutorship. That's very akin to the uh, executive MBA programs uh, in some schools where you hold on a full-time job and kind of integrate business school learning with your work. Uh, the only difference, though, is that it's the integration is in your head. It's not curated. Theoretically, I agree with you 100%, but as you know, it takes many people well into their 30s and 40s to figure out what they want to do. So in such a situation, how can you expect a 21-year-old or even somebody even younger than that to figure out which branch to take, what is the right playlist, as you put it, right? What to learn, what not to learn, what's useful, what's going to be useless? That's a great question and a great point. And so let's address that. First of all, that's how what's, you know, today, you sort of have to pick your career at age 15, 16 almost, you know, which mm-hmm. AP courses you're taking, you know, your track is set. Mm-hmm. I thought I was uh, rushed into making career choices when I was in India, but as I watched my daughter go through school in the U.S., by eighth grade, decisions were being made. So that's mm-hmm. not a great thing. Uh, in fact, I find it extremely odd and strangely un-American, but that's the way it is today. Now, having said that, I do think that most fields, you know, we, we went through an era of over-specialization right, where mechanical engineering split into five fields, you know, ocean engineering, for example, right? Mm. And now what's happening is they're going through an era of consolidation, where some of these schools are sort of holding back into more uh, foundational stuff. So I do believe that there are probably about two or three fields, you know, if you take engineering, electrical engineering, computer science, mechanical, they're pretty foundational. And that's number one. Number two, you've got to learn programming if you're in mechanical, right? If you're in computer science, you probably want to learn some maker stuff. I am of the belief that it's sort of a generalization of this, where the foundations, as I said, are emphasized, keep you more mm-hmm. able to morph and remorph into other careers. If you want to specialize and get something and do something extremely specialized, that's great, but you have to do it uh, with a lot of knowledge. And as a young person, if you don't know, take something foundational. See, I remember one time I was giving a talk somewhere, and one kid raised his hand and said, so you graduated from MIT. So what is the one thing you learned at MIT that is most useful to you. Look ahead to the rest of your life. And of course, I wasn't expecting any question like that. And the answer that came to my mind is, at MIT, I learned 
how to learn. There's a certain amount of confidence that pops into me, or maybe it's methodology that says, now that you've learned these things at MIT, whatever else comes at you, you'll be able to learn as well. I don't know what that is, but that's what I walked away with, learning how to learn. If that could be the foundation, if you will, and all other pedagogies are customizable and individualized, people would be lifelong learners who will thrive their entire lives. We spend, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars that students spend in college, right? Mm -hmm. And spend four years getting an undergraduate degree and maybe two years of getting a master's or Mm -hmm. three to four years getting a PhD, yet we never tell them how to learn. So it is my view again that we've got to do that meta-education, which is we need to tell students how to learn. You bring up a good point. So, for example, an engineer who has to design a bridge is able to envision that bridge, which has never been built before, right? Uh, something like that may have been, never been built before, and then they are able to deconstruct it in their mind, think of all the different modules right down to the components, and then flip the whole thing. They know how to piece it all back together and how this bridge might behave, might look, might, uh, you know, where the stresses and strains may be. They imagine all of these things in their head, but that comes from good engineering education combined with some experience. So what you're suggesting is like that skill, they need multiple metacognition skills at a young age as a foundation. Exactly. And they should know they're doing it. They should be meditative and reflective about it. Right? So what do you think they, is the right age at which to uh, inject this into uh, people? I actually think you can start it very young. I think we treat young people as children because they are children in some respects. But we don't give them credit for the incredible feats of intellectual achievement that, for example, a baby goes through when she learns to speak for the first time or to walk for the first time, right? So I actually think that these sort of reflective metacognition things can be in very subtle ways addressed at a very young age because learning to speak is a pretty stunning creation of frameworks. So I think you can start at age eight. You know, why did you think that way? How did you address this issue? Now, this is very hard to do. It's very hard to scale. So we choose not to do it. And actually, in my view, this is where the achievement gap comes from to a large extent across demographic strata. This is what the child of an accountant is going to hear from her mom, right, compared mm-hmm. to someone who, it, it doesn't matter whether the child is a carpenter or an accountant, it doesn't matter. If they can convey that, it can make a huge impact. So this is basically upbringing. This is what happens at home. Yes, it is the way you analyze a problem. It is the way you encourage the child to think about a problem, to look at different perspectives. Exactly. In your presentation, which you gave at Princeton, you had... Uh personal curiosity as a factor that makes a big difference in somebody's ability to learn or how successful they are at learning. On the surface, logically, what you're saying makes sense, but can you shed some more light on that? Yeah, there's actually a beautiful piece of research that came out of, actually, MIT, one of my colleagues, John Gabrielli, he just, they discovered certain brainwave patterns that correspond to really good learning and a different set of patterns that correspond to not so good learning. And it turns out the dopamine circuit is activated in the good learning behavior, but they couldn't figure out what it was. There's another group in California that figured out what that pattern was. It turns out to be the state of curiosity. So that's the scientific evidence. But basically what it comes down to is that if the brain is curious, it will learn. Just as if you're hungry, the saliva will flow and you will eat. The brain has a similar mechanism. So if you make someone curious, make them hungry, they will learn. And, you know, again, curiosity is the province of the leisured class, so to say. In other words, if you have leisure, if you're not running around putting out fires, you have the time to engage in higher intellectual activities, and curiosity is one of them. 
But if you're a parent working two jobs and you have two kids at home and you can't give them attention, you are not going to have the time, regardless of how wonderful your intentions are, to give that child that environment of curiosity. That's true of adults as well. If they're curious about something, we learn. But, you know, our system is designed to a large extent to do away with curiosity. And, in fact, we even have expressions in English that deride curiosity. Curiosity killed the cat, right? Yeah, you're right. All good things come to those who wake. You know, it's all about stilling that hunger. That is thinking suitable for the industrial era where it was command and control. Exactly. Now we're in the gig economy. You're the, the CEO of your own life. You still teach regularly at MIT. So you have a class. I know MIT kids tend to be generally motivated, but not everybody is. How do you arouse the curiosity of those in your class that don't seem very interested? I'll give you a simple example. There's uh, some tech in the field of manufacturing, right? So there are two ways to teach manufacturing. One of them is to sit them down and basically tell them what the textbook says. Another way is to turn it upside down and give them something and say, how was it made? And that's how you prime it. Once you've created the hunger, then if you provide the information, there's an intention from the student to absorb it, but also a place to put it. Context is very important. Saliency in context. So that's how we tend to do it. In fact, there was one exam. I was talking to a student who graduated many years ago, and she remembered that in one of my manufacturing exams, I had a little Ziploc bag with a bunch of things in them, and I said, figure out how each of them was made, as opposed to a question printed on a sheet of paper, right? So that's very MIT. It obviously takes more money, right? I had to buy all these little plastic things that they had to figure out, or metal things. It's a load on me. Uh, Grading it is not easy. And MIT students are motivated. So, yes, that's not easy to do, but I do think that moving in that direction is what our society needs because the fact of the matter is when these people are adults, that's what they're going to face today. They aren't going to be working in a large factory and being given command and control instructions that they merely act out. Let me counter both of your points with a fact of life. Lazy brain, lazy people, and lazy teachers, they are bound, right? Everybody is saying, well, how can I, you know, you remember the typical mentality when we graduated. It's like, oh, my, I've got a bachelor's. I'm all set for the rest of my life. How many of your classmates said that? I bet you many did. That's the general thinking. How do you counter that? And same thing with teachers. It's like, you know, it's the same textbook, same lecture over and over and over and over again. You didn't write down what I wrote on the blackboard. What's wrong with you? There are two parts to that. One is how do you change the system? And the other is, is it intrinsic? I actually don't think it's intrinsic. Is a kitten lazy? No. You know, we're all mammals, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, kittens are not lazy. A kitten gets lazy if you put it in your house and feed it and gets fat, right? We, our society, mm-hmm. I think, sort of shapes people that way to some extent. I actually think in the end, all human brains to me have the same potential. And they can all be active and energetic. And we just have incentives in place today that have created a certain stable situation. Now, how do you change? I actually think that we've got to adopt innovation as an international mantra right? Mm -hmm. Innovation and change has to be the one constant. The way I see it is you need to be progress-oriented. Progress could be, you know, I want to help my family, my friends, I want to help society. In some ways, I think the social contract that people have been told about is one that is static. Do your job, everything will be fine, right? Mm -hmm. And then you'll retire on the company account, and then, you know, you can settle down and, you know, have fun with your grandkids. Mm -hmm. But what the gig economy and all these things are saying is, yeah, it's a very different world today, right? Mm-hmm. So the static contract, in some ways, is of limited value suddenly. So it's a societal upheaval, I think. You know, your progress principle, you know, an example that pops into my mind is what uh, Elon Musk just did with a rocket he launched. 
it made me stop and say, wait a minute. Here is a guy who's he barely scraped enough money together and he says, if the next one fails, uh, my company goes bust. And then there are Martin Marietta, Lockheed, Boeing, you name all the big companies that have been around for decades. They couldn't come up with a bigger rocket than Elon Musk. This guy is more progress-minded than they are. Yeah, no, I absolutely agree. I mean, the only other thing I'll say is that we have to be a little bit careful as a society because progress, I'm not picking on Elon Musk, I think he's terrific, by the way. I think he's a mm-hmm. real uh, inspiration. And I think your comment is absolutely spot on. But I want to also emphasize the value of progress in terms of emotional progress, personal progress, value, as you put it, you know, emotional, personal, societal, etc. It mm-hmm. shouldn't all have to be, you know, about money. So I think that as a society... We also need to place shape values such that we are doing things that are also making the long-term hopes for the species more viable. Okay, if I may, can we spend a few minutes that we have left talking about different learning styles because that's something that people can take away and use today as soon as they listen to this. Sure, you said different learning strategies, sure thing, yep. Yeah, because you have a whole bunch of them that I saw listed in the presentation. For example... You know, you talk about learning in bite-sized chunks. It's very simple. Did Michelangelo, do you think, ever sit through a 90-minute lecture? How did Michelangelo learn? He probably watched other masters, and he probably got little tips here and there. The fact of the matter is the architecture of the brain is not designed to consume vast torrents of information. It is consumed to digest information and to turn it into long-term learning in small chunks. I mean, there's a lot of research on this. But it's convenient for us to sit people down and lecture them for 90 minutes. In fact, even the word lecturing is a bad word today, right? <laughs> My kid said to me the other day, don't lecture me. And I go, listen, honey, that's what I do for a living, right? So yes, bite-sized chunks, there's a lot of research showing the value. And, and what, what is the like ideal size of a chunk? First of all, you have to sort of modulate it with a level of interest. And how much of it is pure information input into your brain? and how much of it is co-doing things. So it turns out it's about 5 to 15 minutes if you're just learning stuff. For example, if you're learning math, learn for 5 to 10, 15 minutes, take a pencil and do it, as opposed to just listen for the next 15 minutes. And you can't do that on a lecture, right, in a regular lecture. But actually, the ideal thing is, you know, if you learn something modular arithmetic, try it out, do five little problems, and you learn it better. So it's basically learn, do, learn, do, learn, do. It's learn, retrieve, or test do, learn, test, do. So it turns out that at the end of the five, ten minutes, if someone can ask you questions about what you learned, mm-hmm. uh, you will, because you're retrieving short-term memory, right, it actually mm-hmm. promotes the organization of the information and consolidation into long-term memory. So what you all really ought to do is let's say you have a kid with you, teach her for five minutes, ten minutes, then ask her questions about what she did, and then let her just doodle with it. You know, maybe try and figure out how to use the modular arithmetic in some pro to solve a problem or something. So learn Get quiz, practice, and then there was another one that I noticed uh, on your list of teach somebody. Yeah, so that's another thing. So it turns out that teaching somebody, and in fact the medical profession does this, right? They say, see one, do one, teach one. That's the medical approach. Hmm. Uh, Teaching is a fascinating thing. It's called elaboration learning. So teaching is like having an open house to your brain. It's sort of like if you invite guests over to your house, you're going to clean up your house. So the act of teaching is very cleansing and also very sort of uh, cementing of memory. So that's another one you can do. Uh, that's why the Montessori system works well, because you have peers teaching other peers. There's actually a lot of research that shows peer teaching is better for both parties. And then one thing I don't want to miss is integration. So when you learn things, 
if you learn them in little tidbits, at some mm-hmm. point you're going to integrate them into a narrative, into your brain. Mm-hmm. You know, how, the arc of all the stuff you learn. How does it fit mm-hmm. together? Mm-hmm. And uh, how, does, how do you use it in the context of a bigger problem? So that's the other piece. How do you do that? Is there a, an effective way for integration? Yes, I mean, there are many, uh, but one of them is projects. So if you've heard of project-based learning, mm-hmm. that's one place where you integrate. But so you where you'll have, have to apply a range of things that you learned all into one place. That's right. You see how they fit together. But you're, you can also integrate in simpler ways. So, for example, if you just learned uh, modular arithmetic, if you have a little micro problem, almost like a mini project, where you have to apply modular arithmetic to do something, right? But without explicitly being asked to do, you do it, but you have to sort of retrieve that information on, and then apply it to get the aha moment. Ah, I, I get how it gets used and that creates context and saliency. You also talked a little bit about space retrieval. So how yeah. frequently should you revise some material in order to absorb or understand it better? Don't kid yourself. You're going to forget pretty much everything you learn. And don't wave a wag a finger at a poor child or even an adult who's forgotten something because that's how the brain works. The brain is inherently lazy for good reason because if it remembered everything, mm-hmm. it would go crazy. I mean, do you remember mm-hmm. everything that happened since the moment you woke up this morning? No. Throws mm-hmm. information away. So what space retrieval is, is simply, it turns out what the brain does is it lazily starts throwing things away until you tell it, no, this is important a little bit of time later. And then it says, ah, this is important. And then mm-hmm. it's less likely to throw it away. And then you got to tell it much later, this is important. And then it says, okay, now I get it. So the idea of space retrieval is uh, someone is learning something, they need to be reminded, but in, in the order of a day later, a week later, a month later, a year later, something, and then it becomes much more likely they'll remember forever. Is there, is there an ideal frequency for uh, this space uh, retrieval? so that you uh, remember it better or absorb it better? Not really, because it depends on how well you learned it to begin with, how interested or curious you were about the topic, etc., etc., right? So uh-huh. the way they, it can be done is to probe. So the retrieval learning I told you, the quizzing I mentioned earlier, uh-huh. when you do a quiz where you're teaching, you're asking the child about modular arithmetic, you may want to throw in something she threw in, learned last week and see if she remembers it. So it turns out the best time to remind someone is when they're getting rusty about it. So you've got to almost sense it. And, you know, programs like Duolingo actually apply this. And then one other thing that jumped out from your list is self-pacing is helpful, and you talk about the Goldilocks principle. What is that? The Goldilocks idea is that not too big, not too small, right? You've got to calibrate. It turns out that you want to get stuff in chunks of time that sort of match your personal state, so to say. And mm-hmm. so self-facing is one example, right? Mm-hmm. Which is, I don't want to learn so fast. This material, I want to learn more slowly, right? So the idea is to sort of match to yourself. By the way, there's a term that, that I hear bandied around, which is learning style. Mm-hmm. If you're a visual learner or you're an mm-hmm. auditory learner. That turns out to not be based on any particularly, we've written that off. Uh, because it turns out that there's no clear thing that someone is an auditory learner or a visual learner. So there are also some fallacies that have uh, gained currency. Learning styles is one of them. The last one on that list that also popped out at me is the best combination for learning is video plus discussion plus some amount of testing. So that actually picks up on the work of a very eminent cognitive psychologist by the name of Richard Mayer. He did a lot of research on things like, you know, when when you're looking at a picture, should you play music or not, (laughs) right? Should you have video with a picture or not? So he has a bunch of principles, and that was one of them. Because, you know, when you're constructing this content, you might say, well, maybe I should have a talking head and music. 
should have sound or should they just look at the text? It turns out sound and text are better together. The point there was not so much that particular rule, but to say there are actually some principles that people have determined. And if you have questions about how to construct a video, well, at least some things we know. So check them out. Don't just make it up. So one question that kind of summarizes uh, all of your experience, you know, as you know, the cost of education has skyrocketed. I know, for example, what I would pay if I went to MIT today is more than double what I paid, you know, uh, when I went there. Educational institutions point out the cost and the value of education that they provide, while the graduates bemoan the poor return on their investment and the burden of student loans. I know you've dwelled in this space and you've been in academia for a long time. So this is a question of you as an individual. How do you think we can reform education? What would reform look like? I think reform is making education effective. And if you make it effective and make it flexible, the investment return is better. And that means applying all the right principles, you know, doing the tests, etc. The other thing is I want to separate out the cost of education, say, at an MIT or Harvard or a Berkeley. These are research institutions where, you know, if you're learning engineering, you're also learning to use the latest electron microscope or something, right? Mm-hmm. So that's a different beast. But if you look at, you know, the cost of education where you're learning, you know, some other field, right? Mm-hmm. Um, can that be made more effective? I think can actually be made much more effective. I think engineering education at MIT can be made more effective, but also the education of humanities can be made more effective by using, for example, digital humanities, by making the learning more experiential and so on. So I think if we focus on effectiveness, then we take some of the emotion out of the debate. And once we've made education more effective, then we can figure out where you want to cut the costs, uh, mm-hmm. which fields you want to focus on, and so on. But in the absence of that, my worry is it's sort of empty debate. So I guess, you know, coming back full circle to something we talked about earlier. So when you say make education more effective, you're saying, figure out ways to add more value in the education you provide. And if you do provide a ton of value, then, you know, taking out costs and uh, people's willingness to easily see the ROI will jump. Exactly. If you take a course on some topic, let's say quantum physics, right? (laughs) Do you really get it? And do you get it enough that when quantum computing, which is hope on the other side of the horizon, starts taking off, you will be competent to participate in that? Mm-hmm. Or did you learn it, check the box, but you actually didn't get it? If we can address that, I think then we can have the value arguments. But we're actually, in my view, not addressing that. And that's, the, to me, the, the clarion call. One last thing, Sanjay. So this has got nothing to do with any of the things we talked about. So this is a personal question. Over your lifetime, was, what is the one thing that you heard or learned when you were young or in your professional life that rings true in your mind and you use it to this day and it's been a big boon to you? I would say, and by coincidence, this is sort of like the Dos Equis beer ad. You know, it says, stay, stay thirsty, my friend. My version of that is stay curious, and the learning will follow. Excellent. Uh, Sanjay, many, many thanks for taking time to come on to Business Thinking Radio. I enjoyed our discussion very much, and I look forward to having you back as uh, you glean more insights into the uh, minds of people and how to help them to learn better. Great pleasure. Uh, real pleasure to be on your radio show. Talk to you soon. Absolutely. Yeah. Thanks for listening to Business Thinking Radio. If you'd like to comment on this episode, please send an email to businessthinkingradio at businessthinking.com. This is Ram Ayer signing off. Thank you for listening to the Ram Ayer Podcast. 
Every week, we bring you the thought-provoking and practical conversations to help you become better, smarter and more successful, helping you achieve your personal greatness. All from the perch of Ram Iyer, the thought leader, author, keynote speaker, workshop leader and mentor. If you want to comment on this episode, please email us at podcasts at mitramaya.com. If you want to listen to previous episodes, please visit www.mitramaya.com forward slash podcasts or find the Ram Iyer podcast on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher and wherever fine podcasts are uploaded.